All right, good morning, City Light. How are we doing? Good morning. Today we're continuing our 21 days of prayer and fasting, and so please make sure you have a booklet. You can grab one on your way out if you do not, and there's digital copies online as well. Uh, make good use of it. Uh, January 28th is our full day of prayer and fasting and worship called Immerse from 9 to 9. Make sure to mark your calendar and join us. And on January 29th, we have baptism. So if you need to get baptized, if you haven't taken that step with the Lord yet, please let us know. We'd love to follow up with you on that. You can fill out a form on the website. Uh, but as we get ready to dive in as well, I want to remind you, um, as you're considering what the Lord is doing, and as we leave some time at the end, that how we respond to God matters with what God continues to do in our lives. And so my prayer is not that we would just hear a sermon, but that we would encounter the living God and that the Holy Spirit would work to transform our lives. So we're going to have the altar open. We're going to have a prayer team down front. And remember, as you, uh, what you do with your body, when people laying on hands, getting prayer, humbling yourselves before the Lord, helps continue what the Lord is doing in your spirit. I want to overemphasize that and offer that to you later today. And I want you to consider how you can respond to God Get prayer, pray for someone, be before the Lord. As the Lord's working in your spirit, as the word of God is opened, I want you to be open to how you might be able to respond to him. So today is the second message in our 21 days. It's called, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Now we use this phrase for a variety of ways. Sometimes we use this phrase to call people out. Like, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Stop looking at me. Weirdo, stop looking at me. You're staring at me. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? We use that phrase to call people out. We're like, hey, hey, watch where your eyes are going. Stop looking at it. Sometimes we use this phrase because someone else is looking at something, usually on their phone, and they're laughing. And we say, hey, hey, what are you looking at? What's funny? I want to see what's funny. You know, what are you looking at that's making you laugh? Or they're also on their phone, and there's a horrible look on their face. You know, it's like, whoa, what are you looking at? You know? And then they tell you some terrible news that happened. These are the kind of things that happen. We say, hey, what are you, what are you looking at? We want to know because what someone is looking at changes what their uh, aura is, what their perception is. It changes how we view them. Whatever they're looking at is changing them. It's changing them. And you can see it on their face. And therefore, I want you to understand this about our life and what we look at. It does the same thing. And we know that we are tempted to look at a million other things. Let me give you some, some stats here. Every single minute on the planet, YouTube users upload 400 hours of video. Tinder users swipe profiles over a million times. This is every single minute. Each day, there are literally billions of Facebook likes. And a recent study found that young adults average using their phones five hours a day at 85 separate times during the day. Obviously, we spend an awful lot of our lives looking at something. Our attention is being deviated towards other things. And I want you to see, not only with that, but how that's having an effect on our lives and how what we look at transforms who we are. And part of the way to get out of where you are to change is to alter what you're looking at. And we're going to see what we're supposed to look at, really what we were made to look at in Jesus. So I want you to go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's go. <clears throat> we're going to spend this morning, like every morning, looking at Jesus. Verse 16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is 
freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, every week we're going to go over these three verses and chop up little parts of it and talk about specific parts of it. So remember, in your booklet it says it. We're going to go over the the acronym for being free every week. So F, freedom is found in God. That's the starting point. That's what we talked about last week. You can't get free if you don't start with God. R, repent from sin and run to God. So how do I interact with God? Well, I have to repent from my sin. I have to run to God. That's what we're talking about today. The last two we're going to talk about the next few weeks. E, then I will experience transformation. We're going to talk about what freedom looks like, what it feels like, what should we expect. And then the final E is I have to engage in the daily process of change. So remember, what we talked about last week was that. To be free, we should expect two things. One is a supernatural breakthrough of God in a moment in time. As we worship, as we pray, as we receive prayer, as we hear the word of God, like there is the possibility and God uses moments to supernaturally change our lives. It happens in an instant. We should expect God to do great things when we gather together, especially as a body. And at the same time, we can't just live right there on the mountaintop. We have to learn to engage with God in the daily process of growth. So those are two things you should look for and expect. One is a moment with God. That can happen even just while you're reading your word or in prayer in your closet alone, whatever. And number two is the daily practice. How do I engage with the daily process of change? Those are the two ways you're going to find freedom, and we're going to see that in a couple weeks. So today we're on R, which is repent from sin and run to God. If we get this from verses 16 and verse 18, look at verse 16. It says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So this is repentance. I'm turning from something. I'm turning to God. And then verse 18 says, when the veil is removed now, with unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. So two aspects of freedom or transformation is that I turn to God and then I behold the glory of God. I repent from sin and I run to God. So we're going to start with the first part is repent from sin when it says when one turns to the Lord. Here's an important thing for you to understand about repentance and about being close to God. You have to turn from sin so you can turn to God. This is a necessary aspect of turning to God. You have to turn from sin so you can turn to God. And you cannot turn to the Lord if you do not turn from sin. So you see, you see the, the, the Kickstarter for this whole process is how do I experience the middle of the passage? Transformation. How do I get there? Remember, like we said, the first part is when one turns to the Lord. Okay, I have to turn to the Lord. Well, how do I turn to the Lord? To turn to the Lord is not adding Jesus as an option or an other thing to my life. Jesus is not an addition. He's a substitution. He becomes everything to me. He takes the place of everything else. I don't turn to God and leave all my other options open. I turn away from every other thing so I can turn to God. And I cannot turn to God unless I turn away from everything else. This is why Jesus was so uh, uh, serious or strict about what does it mean to turn to him when he talked about you need to take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, he says, will save it. 
He's like, listen, if you don't hate everyone else in comparison to how much you love me, then you're not my disciple. Jesus is saying, you have to leave everything else so that you can follow Jesus. You have to turn from sin so you can turn to God. Now, here's what happens, here's what happens for us. Is we cannot get God without repentance. I can't get the benefits of God, the salvation of God, the presence of God, the knowledge of God, the company of God, the fatherhood of God. I can't get any of these things apart from repentance. But here's what many of us try to do. We, we try to get God and our own way at the same time. We're trying to get God and his benefits while also holding on to our own way. And for some of us, the danger is we call ourselves a Christian, but we don't live for Christ. There's a big difference here. And so it's like we're trying to, you're trying to walk to God. You want to turn to God. You say, okay, okay, I want to turn to God. But the issue is you're trying to turn to God, but you're still looking at the world. So it's like if God's over here and the world is over here, the way you're trying to get freedom is like this. And you're like, I want to go to God but I don't want to turn away from the world. I don't want to turn away from my way. I want to have my way. Can I get saved and have my way too? That would be great, you know? I don't want to deny my flesh. Can I follow Jesus and then keep fulfilling my own desires? And so we do this, you know, and we try to follow Jesus like this. Now, obviously, the byproduct of that is going to be that I will stumble and fall. I can't walk backwards forever. I cannot walk backwards when I try to follow Jesus. And what God wants to say to some of you this morning is, you need to turn around. You're not going to find freedom walking to God backwards. You have to turn from sin to turn to God. You need to turn around. You know, if you want to end up going the right way, you guys know if you're going the wrong way, the only way to go the right way is to turn around. Those of you who have been busy in the car doing something else other than paying attention and have missed the exit know that as soon as I realize I missed the exit, my only option is to admit defeat and turn around. I have to admit that I wasn't paying attention. If I want to get to where I'm supposed to go, I have to hit the next exit, go right, go left, go left, get back on the road I was on, and I have to turn around. The only way I can get where I'm supposed to go is I have to turn around. And that's true for so many of us this morning. And God is, is saying to you, you cannot make progress, find freedom, be transformed until you turn around. You're trying to follow God by walking backwards. You're trying to hold on to your old way of life and get God too. You're trying to fulfill the flesh while also God's telling you to deny the flesh. You're trying to follow God in some way, at least with your words, but you're not living in accordance with that. And that's why you're so stuck and why you cannot find freedom. You know, the irony is, is that if you try to get your way and God, you end up with nothing. That's the irony. You end up going nowhere. And so you have to turn from sin to turn to God. A part of the reason for this is because the way that we work, the way that God has designed us, here's a way you could say it that you could write down, is that whatever gets your attention is what gets your devotion. It's very simple. It's like a math equation. One plus one equals two. Whatever gets your attention gets your devotion. Whatever you give time to think about 
that thing you're going to care about. Whatever you give time in, you know, whatever you put your effort in, your money in, right? I'm sure you don't pay any attention to where other people's money is, is going. You're paying attention to what your money is doing and whether the investments your money is in is making a difference or not. That gets your devotion because it gets your attention because it matters to you. And so it is true in our lives. Whatever gets your attention gets your devotion. And if you want to be devoted to Jesus, you have to give him your attention. You cannot be devoted to Jesus apart from giving him your attention. Therefore, we have to today, and you need to think about the ways in which you need to do this, intentionally repent by turning from old ways of thinking, by turning from what maybe even others have taught or have passed down to us that isn't Christ-like. It's not in agreement with Jesus. It may be by tradition. It may be within my family. It may be within my upbringing. But it is not in agreement with Christ. And therefore, because it is not in agreement with Christ, I have to turn away from it. Whatever it is, the way I've been thinking, my, my habits, my lifestyles, my desires, these things have to be turned away from so you can turn to God. Now, I notice, you know, when we talk about repentance, nobody says amen or gets excited. Everybody's real quiet, you know? They, you know. Everybody's real taking notes. That's good, that's good. Well, here's, here's what I, here's my, my fear. That's a great, that's a great way to, to not be loud, you know, to not talk back and say, I'm just, I'm taking notes, taking notes. Here's my, here's what I want you to understand. Is even as Christians, and especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, we have such a negative view of repentance as if it's a negative thing and I have to go through it to get the positive thing. And what I want, the, what I want you to see from the Bible is that repentance is the avenue for blessing. Repentance is a positive thing. Repentance is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. It's a thing that God blesses. It's a thing that God loves. It's a thing that God honors. It's a thing that God responds to. You know, remember how often like when you were dating somebody and you worried about every text you ever sent to say, this has to be just the right words so I can get just the right response, you know? How many of you said like, I'm gonna say it this way or how long should I wait before I text her back? I can't look too needy, you know? Every text, you're trying to get the right response, you know? You're, you're organizing all of your thoughts and all of your words and your emojis and whether is this gonna feel weird, you know? You're doing everything why? Because you want the right response from her, and you're trying to organize the way that you're speaking and the way that you're texting so that she can think the right way about you, so she can respond in the way that you want to her. And what I want to show you today is that repentance is the words God has given us to initiate a great response from God. If you want a favorable response from God, then repent. It's not a negative thing. He has given us the way to say, I will respond favorably to this, to this text message. I will respond favorably to these words. Repentance is a thing we should love. It's a thing we should enjoy, not because it's like fun all the time. Obviously, we have to recognize what's wrong, but because it produces great blessing. I'm going to give you two reasons you see here in, the, in this text itself. Why is repentance a good thing? Well, the first one is this. Repentance creates the opportunity for a relationship. Repentance creates the opportunity for a relationship. You see how the process goes. When one turns to the Lord, which is a process of repentance, like I said, you can't turn to God without turning from sin. 
It says, when one turns to the Lord, the product is the veil is removed. Meaning that the barrier between me and God to have a relationship with my maker has been removed. What has removed the barrier? Repentance. Me turning to God. So repentance has created the opportunity for a relationship. And namely with God, it's the relationship that I need the most. It's the relationship that I was made for. And you and I know how true this is in our own life, even in regular relationships, that repentance is a great way to solidify or to open the door to a relationship. How often do our relationships disintegrate because we're not willing to say, I was wrong? It's the lack of repentance that destroys the relationship. And as soon as someone is willing to say, I was wrong, my bad, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have acted that way, has nothing to do with you, it is completely entirely my fault, I own my stuff, that posture all of a sudden opens the door to warmness in the relationship again. We get cold with one another because nobody's willing to say, that was on me. And as soon as someone does that, the coldness begins to melt away. Repentance is, you guys know this, in any functional relationship you have had, that's a good relationship. It has taken repentance on both sides. I screwed up. I was wrong here. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. That's a natural part of having a healthy relationship. And if you don't do that, your relationship will disintegrate. It will get cold. But if you do that, you know, it's the irony. If I own the fact that I mess up, I actually increase my odds of having good relationships. Well, the same is true with God, to say it creates the opportunity for the relationship. So this is true initially. You cannot have a relationship with God unless you turn from your sin. You can't have both ways, which is why some of you are so stuck in some weird form of Christianity that's not actually real. You don't have a real relationship with God because you're not in a relationship with God because you tried to add God to your life instead of taking him as a substitute for your life. You, you, you fooled yourself. You haven't started a relationship with God because adding God, coming to church, saying you believe in Jesus doesn't begin a relationship with God. But turning away from all of your sin, recognizing that you and I are a mess and that our sin deserves judgment and that Jesus is the only Savior and coming to him and receiving his salvation for you, that begins a relationship with God. You don't start, let me just be super clear. Coming to church does not initiate a relationship with God. Saying you believe in Jesus does not initiate a relationship with God. But turning from everything else to believe and trust in Jesus is what initiates a relationship with God. And if you've never turned away from yourself, your way, the world, all the things, and turned to God, then you have not initiated a relationship with Jesus. And it's no wonder you're not experiencing freedom because you don't have the Holy Spirit. How are you going to walk free as a Christian if you're not one? And you just need to evaluate. Nobody can tell you that. I don't know, but I'm just telling you how the Bible presents these things. And you have to discern before the Lord and get with other people who know Jesus and think through these things. This is why the Bible so often says, hey, test yourself. Examine your life. Make your calling and election sure. And if you're constantly living in sin without any ability to have any victory whatsoever, it might be a sign that you never began a relationship with Jesus in the first place. Repentance creates the opportunity for a relationship. It opens the door so that we can be with our maker. 
A relationship with God is what we were made for. Therefore, we end up being satisfied, more content, at more peace, with living with more purpose. All these things enter into our life when our relationship with God begins. The second benefit of repentance is this. Repentance creates the opportunity for greater understanding. As we'll see throughout 2 Corinthians, when it removes the veil, it gives sight to see, which is just basic common sense to say, if I had a blindfold on, my understanding of the room would be very small. I wouldn't know who was sitting where. I wouldn't know what was going on. I would have a general idea. I wouldn't have any specific information to deal with. I wouldn't be able to interact rightly with the room. I wouldn't be able to see it right. Well, this is true with our lives. If we don't repent, the blinders, the veil, the blindfold is on our lives. We cannot see God rightly or the world rightly. And so when God, when we repent, it takes the veil away, it takes the blindfold off, and it allows us to see things appropriately. So it gives us sight instead of blindness, it brings light into our darkness, it gives us clarity instead of confusion. A very simple way to realize this, to think about this in life, is that you can't be right until you realize you're wrong. This is basic. I can't be right until I realize I was wrong. And I have to realize I was wrong so I can be right, so I can change what I think, so I can actually align my life with the truth. So repentance is a blessing because it realizes, hey, I was wrong. I'm wrong. And in being wrong, I have the opportunity to now realize what's right. My eyes see, this way is wrong, this way is right. This way leads to destruction, this way leads to life. And I begin to act in accordance with that. I had the right information to make better decisions, to align my life with who God is, how the universe is made. It's like realizing gravity is a thing. And being like, well, if I just try to pretend or ignore like this is a rule in the world, soon I'm going to realize how destructive that's going to be in my life. As soon as I say, well, I have to realize there are some truths outside of myself I have to align my life with, then I begin to live much more happy and better. The same is true with the, with the word of God. There's a certain way God has made the world. There's a certain things God has made us to do. There's a certain design that God has given us. Only in certain ways of life can that design be fulfilled and met. Therefore, the only possible way to live in accordance with the truth in the right way is to first realize that you and I choose the wrong way. Like we said before, we have to turn around. I don't know how many of us would choose, would prefer to be confused as opposed to be clear. And if we choose to not repent, all we're doing is accepting confusion. We're accepting blurry lives. We're accepting discontentment. We're accepting an inability to change. We're accepting all of these negative things just because we refuse to admit that we're wrong. So repentance, you see, is a blessing. It creates the opportunity for a relationship. It creates the opportunity for greater understanding. Now, this is true initially, so some of you need to repent for the very first time. You've never turned to God and away from sin, and today is the day to do that, to trust in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection for you and your sins. Turn to God. But for many of us as well, this is the rhythm of a relationship with Jesus. To say, I don't have to repent once. I need to confess my sins and turn to God every day. The more I do that, the more I recognize where I'm wrong, the more I'm going to be able to live what's right. The more I'm willing to confess where I'm wrong, the warmer my relationship with God's going to be. And if I want to enjoy nearness to God, I can't live in pride. I have to live in humility. 
I can't have a close, an experiential close relationship with God while also trying to have a close relationship with my sin. I can't hold both things tightly to myself. I have to let go of one so I can get the other. And this, for some of you, in your walk with Jesus, has been a barrier. You say you're not experiencing nearness to God because you're not willing to not be near to the wrong thing. And you're not going to get close to God if you don't choose to get far from sin. It's just not going to happen. You can't have both ways. I can't have both ways. None of us can have both ways. And really, as we think about it, nor should we want to have both ways. Now, as you say all this, you think, wow, I know some of you in the room or watching online, you say, well... I think I'm not in a good spot. You think, I don't care. I don't know. You know, it probably doesn't matter how hard I repent, how much I do these things you're telling me to do. You think, I've done too many bad things. You think, there's no way. You think, there's no way that I could just say, I'm sorry. I really mean it, but just say, I was wrong. I'm sorry, Jesus, you're right, and you are the only Savior of the world. I confess and believe in you. You think, there's no way. There's no way that all the mess I've ever done could be covered by that. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know how far I've been. There's no way God's gonna receive me for that. It has to be more. It has to be different. Well, let me give you some good news this morning. 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, if we say we have no sin, this is the first part, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But get this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and get this, cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness, from the not so bad parts of our unrighteousness, from the unrighteousness we're willing to admit to others. No, all unrighteousness. Look at the process, look at this, it's the Bible. If I confess, he forgives. That's it. Doesn't matter how far you are. Doesn't matter how bad you've been. Doesn't matter. Remember, one of the greatest apostles of the Lord Jesus, Paul, spent his BC life killing people. I mean, it's not like, you know, this is the point of this is say, hey, look, if you confess and believe, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. All of your sins, and not only is this true for those of you who are apart from Christ, and you say, I need to confess and believe in Jesus today, but for those of you who do know Jesus as well, this is the normative, operative relationship for the Christian, is to confess and then to receive experientially the forgiveness. Obviously, Jesus has already forgiven you, but as you confess and as you interact with God in these ways, he grants you the blessed experience of knowing you're forgiven. You know, sometimes we live in shame or regret simply because we're we're not uh, practicing confession. And the bondage that we've been set free from is still living on us and creating a burden on us because we're not utilizing the means that God has given us to activate the experience of freedom. And so if I want to even experience at greater levels of assurance or greater levels of victory or with greater power and authority the cleansing, forgiving work of Jesus that he's already done, then I must daily practice confession with other brothers and sisters, with Jesus. God is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At one time, I have a lot of crazy stories with my children, but one of them does crazier things than the others. And he was, uh, one day, we were out on the, on the street, 
and, uh, and there was a, a, a person working on the cement. This was at our old house a few years ago. And I remember uh, he goes out down the street, and there's wet asphalt on the ground. And he comes back to me on our driveway with hands full of wet asphalt. So he's got like, you know, like the grimy, sticky tar, you know, things on his hands, on his hands. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what happened? You know, like, what are we supposed to do now? And I, I remember his brothers, they were really little. They saw him, and they were legitimately concerned he would turn into a road. <laughs> they were legitimately concerned. They thought, he's going to turn in. They started crying. They were like, he's going to turn into the street, you know? I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I wanted to be like Spider-Man. I thought, I, don't, I guess I don't understand what the connection is, but he thought these would make him like web slingers or something. So I Googled. I said, I mean, you know, I, my fear was like, what is this stuff hardened on you? Like, is he going to be stuck? He's going to be like Groot from like Star Wars, like, where he's got these things coming out of his hands. Well, like, how do you deal with this? And I Googled it. Praise God for Google sometimes. And uh, here are the ingredients to getting wet asphalt off of a human being. Oil, mayonnaise, soap, and a loofah. These four things, just in case you ever find yourself in a predicament like me. Oil, mayonnaise, soap, and a loofah. So no joke, I got a baby pool out, put him in the baby pool, poured oil, a bunch of dish soap, and squirted a bottle of mayonnaise in the, in the, in the pool. <laughs> I took a loofah, I just stuck his hands in there, and I just, you know, and hey, it worked, it worked. He was free, he was a free man, and he was able to go back to having fun and not worrying about turning into a road anymore. Everyone was much happier now. Now, here's the encouragement for you this morning, is that no matter what kind of mess you find yourself in, Jesus has the ingredients to cleanse you up. You know the one essential ingredient to cleaning any human being of the mess of their sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you will be covered by the blood, you will be cleared of your mess. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. It doesn't have to have its effects on you anymore. It's not just sort of gone, it's completely gone. Jesus wants to clean you from your sin with his blood. And if you would believe and trust in Jesus today, your life would be made new. I encourage you to do that. R, repent. The second R is run to God. So we must repent from sin and we must run to God. And remember, we can't run to God unless we first repent from sin. So the verse now says, verse 18, with unveiled face we behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into his same image. So repentance has removed the veil, it has taken the blindfold off, and now with eyes to see and without a barrier in the way, we can now see God for who he really is. And the Bible says we will behold his glory, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus, the glory of who he is and what he's done for us. And what now we must begin to understand is that there is nothing and no one more wonderful, more beautiful, more interesting, more amazing, or more glorious than Jesus Christ. To behold the glory of the Lord is to enter in to the most wonderful reality in the universe. To enter in to the most interesting news you could ever hear about. 
to enter into the most secure relationship you've ever, you've ever felt. To behold the glory of the Lord is to interact with the most wonderful person who is in existence. And if you cannot see this or are not living like this now, it's a good sign that you need to repent. If Jesus isn't wonderful to you, you need to repent. If Jesus isn't more interesting to you than Instagram, you need to repent. If Jesus isn't more beautiful to you than your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you need to repent. Jesus is the most glorious being in the universe, and if we do not act like he is who he is, we need to repent. That's who he is. And nothing other than acting like that's who he is is acceptable. That's how far below we fall. It's not like whether you're just nice enough or not. The problem with all of us is we haven't treated God with the glory he deserves. Our hearts are not prone to give him that. That's the sin that's in our lives. This is why we need to repent, not just because you do bad things to humans, but because you do not honor God in accordance with who he is. We disrespect him, we ignore him, we don't love him and worship him. And that is the primary reason why sin has been destroying our life. This is the thing that kills us. We do not treat Jesus for who he really is. We do not honor him for what he's really like. We get quickly bored with Jesus, we can't read the Bible for five minutes, and we can scroll for three hours. And Jesus looks at that and says, You're, it's all off, something is off. How could anything be more interesting than God? You say, well, of course, if God really is there and he really is who he is, then he would be the most interesting person in the world. So if I'm not interacting with him as such, then something is wrong in my spirit. Something is wrong. I cannot accept that. Therefore, I need to repent. And once again, you will not enjoy the glorious things of God until you repent of accepting lesser things. You have to repent so you can run to God. Now, this is a, is a wonderful part of this is that not only is God glorious, but we were made for the glory of God. We were made to have capacity to enjoy the glory of God. We were made for big things, not small things. And that's why you feel it when you settle for less than you were made for. You were made to be a part of something great, to know someone great, to be fully and satisfied in someone great, to have a relationship with the most important person in the world, to be secure in the family of God. You were made for these glorious and great realities, which is why you feel so empty or, or off when you settle for less than that. You were made for glory. That's why the Bible says here, now as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his image. An easy way to say this is that we become what we behold. You just think about, okay, what's the process for transformation? Well, I will become whatever I behold. Like a mirror, I reflect what is in front of me. A mirror simply reflects that which you put in front of it. A mirror is whatever is in front of it. And so it is with human beings. We are whatever we place in front of us. Whatever we give our attention to, whatever we try to be like, that is what we will become. Now, if we become what we behold, this is how it works. If we behold trivial things, we become trivial people. If we behold superficial things, we become superficial people. If we behold fearful things, we become fearful people. If we give our attention to all the things that could go wrong, we become anxious people. 
What we give our attention to is that which we become. If we behold worldly things and go to church on Sunday and then keep beholding worldly things, we will be worldly people. That which we behold is what we become. It is hardwired into how it works. You cannot become like Jesus unless you behold the glory of Jesus. You cannot just happenstance your way or fall into being like Jesus. You become what you behold. And if you feel like you lack depth, spiritual depth in your life, it's probably because you're intaking superficial things. If you feel like you lack a sense of the glory of God, it's probably because you're more focused on the glory of men. Whatever you behold, that which you become. And if we behold glory, then we become glorious people. And if we behold Jesus, we become like Jesus. Here's something for you to write down and consider throughout your week. Is that our lives are not full of glory because our eyes are not focused on glorious things. And here's the phrase for you. Your focus is either filling you or killing you. I'm telling you, your focus, it's only doing two things. It's either filling you with the great realities of the glory of God, or it's killing you with the superficial focus on the lack of glory in the world. What you think about every week is either filling you or killing you. What you're looking at on social media is either filling you or killing you. What you do when you wake up in the morning to start your day is either filling you or killing you. Who you listen to the most is either filling you or killing you. Your focus is only doing two things. It's either filling you or killing you. And my encouragement as you focus and encourage you to behold the glory of the Lord is that you would be filled with the wonderful glory of the Lord on an ever-increasing basis. That you would progressively be filling the cup of your soul with the wonderful reality of the glory of Jesus Christ that you would progressively be more satisfied in his presence, that you would progressively be more pure like Jesus is pure, that you would progressively love like Jesus loves because as you behold the love of Jesus, you're going to love like Jesus. And as you behold the purity of Jesus, you will become more pure like Jesus. And as you behold the purpose and, and focus of Jesus, you will live according to the purpose and focus of Jesus. Whatever you focus on is either filling you or killing you. There's no glory in our lives because there's no glory in our eyes. We're not looking at glorious things, so we're not filled with glorious things. There's no, as they would say, twinkle in our eye. It's kind of how you should think about the Christian life, is that even in suffering and difficulty, the person that is filled with the Holy Spirit and focused on Jesus Christ is filled with such glory that even in the most difficult times, there's a twinkle in the eye. There's an assurance that everything's okay. There's a peace that passes understanding. There's a purpose even in the midst of bad situations. There's an assurance of love even in the midst of my mistakes. And as I behold who Jesus is, it becomes who I am. But so often we are not full on the inside because we only intake empty things. 
This is like eating cotton candy. I don't know how many of you know this scientific fact, but cotton candy is fully digested in the mouth. Completely. This is true. It provides no sustenance for the body. You put it in your mouth, and it is gone. It doesn't go in. But so often, this is what our lives are like spiritually. We're eating the cotton candy of the world and have shriveled and empty souls. That's not providing substance for my life. It's not providing glory to my soul. We become superficial on the inside because we only look at superficial things. Or you could say it this way, there's no substance in our soul because there's no substance in our scroll. Just like that one, Dr. Seuss for you today. You're not gonna forget that one. No substance in our soul because there's no substance in our scroll. You know, the primary issue with our life is that it lacks glory. It's too small, too weak, too earthly, less glorious. It's as simple as when you eat too many appetizers and you have no room for the main meal. You know, to all the chips and queso people out there. You just fill up on chips and queso, your enchiladas come, you take them home. You say, I'm full, you know? But that's how it is with our lives. We're trying to live off chips and queso. We're trying to live off the words of other people, the pictures that we see out here. We're trying to live off other people's lives instead of living our own lives. We're trying to live off all these other things that other, the things of the world are giving us, good things and bad things. But everything the world gives us is like an appetizer. You can't live off appetizers. And if you eat too many appetizers, you don't have room for the main meal. You won't have space for the glory of God. You won't be hungry for the glory of God because you will be filled up and you'll have a stomach ache because you ate the wrong things. You filled up on the wrong things. Nobody has felt great after filling up on chips and queso. Nobody's felt like they should run a marathon after that. Nobody's not ready to go. Full of glory. No. No, you feel disgusting. It's true for our physical lives, but it's true for our spiritual lives. If we do not eat well physically, we are physically off. And if we do not eat well spiritually, we'll be spiritually off. You need to make room for the main meal. So what happens then? Our souls, they shrivel to the size of what we take in. And if we don't input enough glorious and wonderful things... There will not be the force to expand my capacity to enjoy and receive wonderful things. Our souls will shrivel. This is a metaphor, okay? You understand. Our souls will shrivel. It's not like something inside of you getting smaller, okay? Our, our souls shrivel to the capacity of what we place inside of them. And almost as a soul management to not feel the empty space so much, it shrivels up to what we put in to manage the fact that it's so small that we don't have anything in our insides, in our souls, with much force or glory. And our souls shrivel. And what happens then with a weakened soul, spiritually speaking, is it doesn't have the same spiritual power to break free of worldly things. So what you need to begin to do, this doesn't happen all at once, but as you behold the glory of the Lord... As you put glorious, pure, righteous, forgiving, wonderful truths into your life, your soul begins to expand and get broader and broader. It gets wider and stronger. It gets filled with glory. You become a person who is only satisfied with glory. 
But the issue with our lives, I wanna once again remind you, is that there's just not enough glory. Let me give you some questions to consider whether there's enough glory in your life. When was the last time you were simply captivated by the glory of God? When was the last time you wept over the reality of your sin? If you haven't been broken because of your sin, that means your life lacks glory. When was the last time you lost track of time because you were so close to God in his presence? When was the last time you said, oh wow, I didn't realize it had been an hour already? When was the last time you went into someone private to pray so that you could be alone with God and enjoy his glorious presence in your life with no distractions? When was the last time? this one. When was the last time you felt so thankful in your spirit just upon hearing the gospel, even if you had heard it now for the thousandth time? You just heard the gospel, you know the gospel, and your spirit jumped with joy. He said, thank you, Jesus. When was the last time that happened to you? How about this? When was the last time you pleaded and begged someone else to know Jesus? the last time that you were overcome with outburst of praise in response to God's goodness. You didn't know what else to do other than to shout or lift your hands or jump around. You're so grateful. When was the last time just something inside of your spirit welled up with such authority and power it just overcame you? So God's been so good to me. When was the last time that you chose the things of God over the things of the world when they were in conflict with one another? When you could choose to prioritize church or you could choose to prioritize sports. When you could choose to prioritize being with other believers or you could choose to prioritize your own life. When was the last time you chose the priorities of the Lord when they were in conflict with the priorities of the world? When was the last time you dedicated large portions of time or resources to God. When you were so consumed with the glory of God and the need of the world to know the glory of God that you just willingly dedicated resources, energy, service, and time because the one thing you cared about you needed to advance was the glory of God. When was the last time these things have happened in your life? I want to encourage you through beholding Jesus that you need more glory in your life. These things, I would hope in my own life, become more consistent over time. Not that they happen all the time. I wish they happened more for myself also. There are many areas in my life here where I realized it's been too long since the last time I was overwhelmed with the glory of God in some of these ways. And therefore, I'll make it my goal to pursue little by little filling my life with more glory. And I hope you do too. What I want to do as we close this sermon now is to take a little time to do what the passage says, to behold the glory of the Lord. 
So you might, you can close your eyes if you want or whatever. I'm just going to read a bunch of scriptures to tell you how great Jesus is. If you want to go ahead and come down front and just respond now, I'm going to read these scriptures. We're going to sing and pray. And I just want you to receive, to let the glory of God expand the capacity of your soul. And respond to God as you see fit. With praise, with humility, with prayer, whatever it is. You want to stand and lift your hands? You want to come kneel before them? I just want you to feel free to respond to God as, you, as he leads you. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So this is the starting point for what does it mean to see God's glory. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is the goal. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where it is the glory of God? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's behold his glory. The glory of Jesus is that Jesus is beautiful. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. The glory of Jesus is that he's my shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. His intentions as my shepherd are good. John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal and kill, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is the kind of shepherd that lays down his life for his people. John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And when Jesus lays down his life, it has such significance, it can pay for all of our sins. First Peter 2, 24 through 25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus is the door that opens an opportunity for real life. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is God. Colossians 2, 9 says, For in him, being Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in him, all things hold together. Because this is true, Jesus is number one. He's preeminent. He's the most important person. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the only Savior. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For no other name under heaven is given to men by which we must be saved. And it's good news he's the only Savior because we only need one. Because Jesus can save anyone. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save, hear me today, to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession, intercession for us. 
Jesus can save you this morning from wherever you are. Jesus is peace himself, Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. He said, I need peace to transform my life. Here it is. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. The kind of peace Jesus gives is greater than we can understand. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Jesus is a great and glorious treasure. Colossians 2, 3 says, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He alone can solve the greatest problem of death. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' light is so great that no darkness can overcome it. John 1.5 says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The love of Jesus satisfies our souls, Ephesians 3.19. The blood of Jesus saves our life, Ephesians 1.7. The touch of Jesus heals our bodies, Mark 1.41. The presence of Jesus brings fullness of joy, Psalm 16.11. The way of Jesus leads to eternal life, John 14.6. And because all this is true, this is why Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Therefore, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. I just want to encourage you to, if you need to come to the altar, come. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, first of all, Lord, we repent from not enjoying, worshiping, and honoring Jesus as we should. We repent from being more interested in other things. We repent from being more focused on worldly things. We repent from trying to follow you and keep our own way, Lord. We recognize today it doesn't work. We repent, Lord. We're sorry. We are wrong. We have sin. It's not okay. We understand that, Lord. And we thank you for the blood and the body of Jesus. We thank you that you have forgiven and cleansed our sins if we will come to you. I pray now in this moment that you would fill us with the glory of Jesus Christ. That you would fill us with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That you would fill us with the love and the peace and the forgiveness and the assurance of Jesus Christ. May our lives, may you deposit some glory into our souls this morning. And may we go and live freely as people filled with your glory. We love you, Lord Jesus. There's nothing more we can say now other than we love you and we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand?